The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. You've been, you have been for the, here for the last couple of weeks. Just to give you a bit of a recap, uh, on week one, the emphasis was that marriage has been instituted by God and therefore we should not attempt to edit marriage or redefine marriage for our own purposes. Then last week, we went a bit deeper with that, a bit more specific with that, and we looked at what role each person in marriage is meant to play according to what God has designed in marriage. Marriage, in, according to Ephesians 5, what Paul says there, is about painting a portrait of the union between Christ and the church. And we saw that when Paul was talking to wives, he was talking about how Christ saved the church. And when Paul was talking to husbands, he was talking then about how Christ sanctifies the church. And the husband and the wife both have unique roles in painting that portrait of of Jesus' union with the church, with his bride. And if they don't play those roles, then the portrait will be incomplete. Marriage, then, is is a sanctifying process whereby each individual is slowly becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what marriage is. It's, a, it's an intense process of, of helping us to become more and more like Jesus. Uh, and, and we do that by, making, by becoming like Jesus ourselves. We, we encourage our, our partner, our, our husband or our wife, uh, by becoming like Jesus ourselves. And this makes marriage incredibly difficult, right? Like anybody who has been married for any period of time will tell you the same. Marriage is tough. Because it's forcing the sanctification process upon us in ways that we can't just put it off, we can't hide away from it until later. My personal experience of marriage is that it has made me less and less selfish over the years, but it happens in such a way that my selfishness is exposed as an ugly thing. And I always thought that that process would be done by my late 20s. I thought I'd probably reach the pinnacle of selflessness by my late 20s and then I'd be good, I'd be the perfect husband and it'd be really fantastic. I'm now 35 and I can't believe how selfish I still am. Case in point, just this morning at 2am, my wife, my darling wife, Kirsty, we've been married for 14 years as of Wednesday, just, just passed, we had a 14th wedding anniversary. Um, at 2am this morning, I had a bit of a coughing fit just for a few seconds. Now, if I was a less selfish person, I, or a good husband would have uh, gotten up, made sure she was okay, got her a glass of water, are you okay, sweetie, can I get you anything else, can I pray for you, did I do any of those things? Nope. I got woken up, I didn't like being woken up, and so my thoughts were, how dare you wake me up in the middle of the night, like, are you serious right now? I'm trying to get some sleep. We, had, we went down to Brisbane for a friend's 40th. We got home late. I'm tired. I've got to get up early tomorrow morning. And here you are coughing and keeping me awake all night. <laughs> I wish the sanctification process was more complete than what it is right now. Now, in my defense, I was half asleep, so I wasn't thinking straight. So I can hide behind that a little bit. But that's the selfishness that came out of me, which means that's the selfishness that is in there. And in that moment, God reminded me of what I'm preaching on today, and I quickly stopped that thought and went back to sleep. (laughs) Didn't get her a glass of water. Should have done that. 
Uh, hey, we'll learn. Marriage is incredibly difficult. It's the process whereby we are becoming more and more like Jesus. And, and the way that we encourage one another to do that in marriage is by becoming more and more like Jesus ourselves. And so the question is, how do I become more like Jesus so that my spouse could become more like Jesus? That's the question we're looking at today. And there aren't many more places in the Bible where uh, we hear about the identity that we have as Christians in Christ. Uh, we don't see that more, very clearly, as well clearly articulated as in Colossians Three. So uh, that's where we're in today, Colossians 3. And the question is, how can I become more and more like Jesus and help my spouse become more and more like Jesus? Now, I'm incredibly aware that this part of Colossians 3 is not directed towards married couples. It's directed towards the church. And yet, because it has so much to say about our identity in Christ and because marriage is about becoming more and more like Christ, then it's going to be incredibly helpful for married couples. That being said, my hope is that if you're here today and you're single, that you won't feel left out, about, out in this, but actually will feel that you'll get a lot out of this message. Whenever we do a series on message, there is always the risk of people feeling isolated or singled out because they're not married. In this room, there is a large proportion of us who are single, divorced, widowed, remarried. And I don't want you to feel left out or alone or that there's something wrong with you. God's grace is there for you. We are here for you. Our heart is for you. And we're going to actually be finishing off the series next week by looking at singleness, looking at what actually the Bible has to say about singleness. And I think it's wonderful. I think it's fantastic. So let's read this passage again. We're just going to look at verses 12 and 13. Paul says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So I've got three points this morning. The first point is this, putting on our identity in Christ. The second point is living out our identity in Christ. And the third point is the realities of living out our identity in Christ. So point number one, putting on our identity in Christ. Paul tells us in verse 12 that if you're a Christian, this is what is true of you. You are chosen, you are holy, and you are beloved. Those are three wonderful statements, three wonderful words. And it's not just a random sequence of nice thoughts. It's not just like a hashtag blessed to cover a whole bunch of things. This is how God sees his people. If you're here and you're a Christian, this is how God sees you. You're his beloved. You're holy. You're set apart. You're chosen by him. That's how God has always viewed his people. If we go back to look at Deuteronomy 7, where Moses says these words, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's holiness. It was not because you were more in number than any, of, than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you 
and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God, by his amazing grace, saved us from slavery to sin out of his own initiative. Not because we did something impressive to catch his attention, not because we did something impressive to earn our salvation, not because we have a particular set of skills that he might find useful in his kingdom, but out of his free and unearned love for us and by his sovereign choice, he saved us. He loves us. He gave himself up for us and he has set us apart from the rest of the world. That is our identity in Christ. If you're a Christian, you are one of God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And you are that before you're an accountant, before you're a father, before you're a nurse, before you're a student, no matter what the world can say about us, no matter what we might gain or lose in this life, no matter what contribution we might make in this life, whether we are fondly remembered forever or quickly forgotten after we pass, whether we leave with nothing to our name, regardless of whatever we've got going on, our good and supreme and controlling identity comes from the fact that we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That is good news. That is what God has done for us. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, that is what is on offer for you. When it comes to God, you don't have to perform or measure up. His love for you is a free gift of grace. And so for those of us who are Christians, Paul says to put on that identity. Put it on. To put on something entails action, right? It means that even though sanctification is a process that begins with God and salvation is a process that begins with God, it is not an automatic thing that we just passively sit back and do nothing about. We actively receive God's that identity by actually putting on this identity in Christ. We've got to do something about that. I was trying this week to think of an illustration where you have to put something fully on to receive it. Here's what I came up with. You know those times, in your, it's like your birthday or Christmas and someone gives you a shirt and it's horrible? Like it's just, it's just terrible? And they're like, put it on! And you're like, okay, sure. And you put it on and you're like, oh, it doesn't itch at all. This is really great. And you've got to wear it and you've got to pretend that you love it. It's, it's almost as if like, you've got to, to fully receive it, you've got to put it on, right? Uh, for the last few years, uh, I have, as a matter of just a bit of a prank, um, for Kirsty's birthday each year, gotten her a terrible costume. Um, I think there's a photo of her. Now, I have her very reluctant permission to put this on the screen. I think she looks beautiful, by the way. I think she looks stunning in that photo, even though she's dressed as a banana. Now, now Kirsty hates dress-ups. She hates costumes. She hates anything like that. And I go to Spotlight every time it's her birthday, and I buy her a terrible costume. I was, last year was an eggplant as well. And I buy her a costume. Just for that moment when she, when she opens it, and the kids, it's a surprise for them. They see it, and they go, that's amazing. Mom, put it on. And she goes, oh, Okay. And she has to put it on, and I get the camera out and take a photo of it. And she only wears it for about three minutes, and then that's it. And then she takes it off, and, and it's all done and dusted. But I, I just, it, it's, you know, it's worth it. It's fantastic. It's great. Just for the moment where she just puts on this banana costume or eggplant costume and whatever's coming up this year, um, just so that she has to wear it. Now, now this illustration falls short because it kind of suggests to us that we, 
It's an idea of something that we don't want to put on. The, the identity that we get from Christ is so wonderful. And we've got to put it on. It's something that he's given us. We've got to put it on. God loves us so much that he chose, us to, chose to save us and make us his people. That's an identity that we've got something to do with, that we've got to put that on. We've got to wear it. And the reason why it's so wonderful is because that identity in Christ can never be taken away from us. If we build our identity on anything other than God, whether that's our income or our work, our employment, our work ethic, whether that's being married or having kids or having a certain, a certain size house or a certain lifestyle, whether that's health or whatever it is, if we build an, our identity on anything that's other than Christ, that thing can be taken away from us. And the reason why it's so wonderful that we have this new identity in Christ is because Jesus can never be taken away from us. That is good news for that. That is good news for us. So we've got to put on that identity. So point number two, how do we do that? How do we live out the identity in Christ? Well, Paul gives us a list of five attributes that mark out the Christian. And if we do these things, in, particularly in marriage, we're going to help one another flourish in ways that are just remarkable. So Paul says, put on compassionate hearts. Now, the way that Paul has written this tells us that compassion is not just an action that we do from time to time. It's deep down in our very beings at the absolute base and core of who we are. Like if you go to a Christian, you go to the absolute core of who they are, you, you should find compassion. This is what Paul is saying to put on. To have a compassionate heart is a willingness to walk in someone else's shoes, to see things from their perspective, and to be willing to bear their burdens and to be used by God to relieve their pain and their sorrow. In marriage, one of the hardest things to do is to see a thing from your husband's or your wife's perspective. It's so easy to come into an argument with our shields up, ready to defend our position, ready to fight. Kirsty and I have a little saying in our marriage which helps us to be compassionate. If one of us says to the other, can I just say something? That's code for, I'm about to raise an issue with you. And it's the kind of issue that actually hurts me. And this is probably going to be a conversation that you don't want to have, but I'm inviting you to put down your defenses and have compassion towards me. If we are new creatures in Christ, we must be compassionate people. He says, put on kindness. Now, I am becoming convinced, increasingly convinced that kindness is one of the most important and yet lacking virtue in a lot of Christians' lives. Mine in particular. We live in a world that is void of, dark, of kindness, where through social media, each one of us has been given a megaphone and believe that everybody, else, everybody around us needs to hear what we have to say. We have to, sell, we have to tell the truth regardless of whether it's kind or loving or not. But the strings of kindness are attached to the very heart of God. When you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, kindness is listed there as a fruit of the Spirit. When you look at the defining qualities of love in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us that love is patient and love is kind. When Jesus calls those who are weary and heavy laden to follow him, he says, take his burden for it is light. And that word light is the same Greek word that Paul uses here for kind. 
And when Paul writes in Romans 2, and Paul writes in Romans 2 that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We might look down on kindness as being an elementary affection, but kindness is actually robust and profound. Kindness is not a deficiency in strength. Kindness is a confidence in the character of God which shows benevolence and affection to others. Kindness in marriage is a sweet benevolence in the way that we speak and act towards one another. Kindness in marriage is not just, is not just affirming that there are right things to say and do, but there's also, there, are right, there, there are also right ways to say and do those things. There are right times to say and do those things. Don't just watch your language. Watch your tone. Don't just do good things. Do them kindly. When you look at your husband or your wife, be conscious of what your eyes are saying. Are they kind eyes? Is there kindness in your eyes? Paul then says, put on humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, says Tim Keller, but thinking of yourself less. Again, turning to Matthew 11, when Jesus describes himself as being gentle and lowly, the word that he chooses for lowly is the same Greek word that Paul uses here for humility. If you get to the heart of the heart of Jesus, you'll find him to be the personification of humility. Humility is the absence of self-exaltation. Humility is forgetting about yourself and not thinking about what you can gain from that situation or from that person. Humility is considering a person, considering a situation and removing yourself, your needs, your goals, your agendas and removing those things from the equation. It's to have such a mind to serve the other person that you have no mind to gain at all from them. Humility is tricky. Because as soon as we think we've got it, we've lost it. We become proud of our humility. To be humble, we need to think about others more than we think about ourselves. We need to do that in such a way that we begin to forget about our own needs and think more about others. Marriage is about self-forgetfulness. In marriage, our first and foremost thoughts in any situation should be, how can my husband or how can my wife gain from this scenario? How can I act and serve in such a way that they benefit? Humility doesn't say, what about me though? Paul says, put on meekness. Too often, meekness is synonymized with weakness. For years, whenever I read, blessed are the meek, I thought it meant that you had to be weak and poorly and frail. That's not what meekness is. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength that is under control. Meekness is having the power and strength to act on your own behalf, but then restraining that strength for the sake of the person you're with, for the sake of that circumstance. Again, turning back to Matthew 11, when Jesus says, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. That same word gentleness is what Paul uses to describe meekness. This is who Jesus is. We live in a day and age where having strength of any kind is also somehow permission to flex that strength. Just because you have a strong opinion about something doesn't mean that everybody else around you needs to hear it. Just because you have the ability to do something 
doesn't mean that you're being loving by doing it. I was in a conversation last week with a gentleman who was articulating some, uh, some theological truth. He's a Christian. He was, he was talking about something that he believed into another Christian brother of his. And there was just no kindness in his tone. There was no kindness in what he was saying. Now, I agreed with actually with most of what he said. But it was ugly. Because he wasn't showing kindness in the way that he was saying it. He wasn't considering how this brother of his was, was struggling in this area. He just had to, like a sledgehammer, you must believe this. See, meekness is not only having power and strength, it's knowing when not to use it. Imagine a warrior in a quiet garden. That's the image of meekness. The warrior, he has power to take life and destroy it, but he's restraining himself for the sake of his environment. In marriage, we have the opportunities to flex our strength. And we need to know what is behind our desire to flex that strength. If you find yourself saying, told you so, you might not be being very meek in that moment. You might be right, but you might not be meek. In marriage, there will be times when you are right and you'll have the opportunity to flex that power in that moment. Meekness puts the sword back in the sheath and says, not now, how can I serve? Meekness is beautiful. Finally, Paul says, put on patience. Patience is one of those things that everybody wants more of, but nobody wants to get it. Because to get it, you normally have to be put in situations where your patience is tested, where your patience is stretched. Patience is long-suffering in the face of adversity. Patience means a gritty resolve in the right direction regardless of what you come against. To be patient in marriage means that you're not looking for overnight results in that person, but you have a gritty resolve for them to be more like Jesus Christ. And then you'll do whatever you can to get them there. To be patient in marriage means a willingness to go the distance with someone, even if it takes you longer than expected to get there. These are, the, these are the reasons why marriage is so hard. It requires these things. For all of these attributes, where do we find our example? Where do we find our fuel to understand where we get these things from? We get them from Jesus. There's a story in Mark 7 where Jesus healed a deaf mute man. As I read it out, listen for Jesus' compassionate heart. Listen for Jesus' <clears throat> kindness, his humility, his meekness and his patience. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Amazing. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus is the most delightful and wonderful person we could ever know. In compassion, 
Jesus took the man privately away from the speculating crowds. In kindness, Jesus used nonverbal signs to communicate with this deaf man. In humility, Jesus healed this man, which caused zealous proclamation of what Jesus was doing, even though Jesus' mission needed the opposite at that moment. In meekness, Jesus could have laid his hand uh, on that man and just kept going. I just touched him and kept going, but he doesn't. He, he took, takes the man aside to show him something beautiful. And in patience, Jesus continues to go about healing people, even though every, every miracle brought him closer to the cross. Jesus is the most wonderful and beautiful person we could ever know. He is the God-man, fully God, fully man. And in him, we have a new identity. We need Jesus' example to us because of how hard it is to do this, especially in marriage. If you want a healthy and happy marriage, get to know Jesus. Become like Jesus. But that's hard, right? It's really hard. And this is what verse 13 is about. Paul continues, he says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another... Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. One of the things that I find so refreshing and sweet about God's word is just how honest it is with us about us. Marriage is hard and we are required to bear with one another. Bearing with someone means that you must endure them. One of the misnomers, one of the common uh, lies about marriage is that all you need is love. Actually, you also need endurance too. You need to be able to bear with that person. You need to be able to suffer them for a long time. To bear with that person means that you're not just tolerating them, you are holding fast to them regardless of their faults. Now we might ask, well, what if their faults are really terrible? And Paul seems to anticipate that question. And he says, if you've got a complaint, forgive them. Too often we take our complaints against one another to someone else, don't we? In fact, making a complaint against a person, gossip, might be the only way that we know how to bear with them. But Paul suggests another way. He says, if you've got a complaint against another, forgiving each other, forgive one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I think it's telling that Paul says, forgive one another, twice in that one sentence and then sandwiched between those two commands he says as the lord has forgiven you just so we know what he means just so we know what the what the standard is here's the thing the power to forgive someone else uh comes from being forgiven ourselves the power to forgive someone else comes from the knowledge of the forgiveness that we've received from jesus christ forgiveness is really hard, as we'll soon see. The command to forgive one another is only possible if we know that Jesus has already forgiven us. And if you are a Christian, you have been forgiven for far more than you will ever need to forgive another person. If I was to sum up and, and add up every single offense, every single hurt that has been committed against me so far in my life, uh, against every other person, uh, sorry, from every other person, add those all together, that is nothing compared to what Christ has had to forgive me of, me alone. 
And if you don't believe that, forgiveness will become very, very difficult. Sometimes we brush over forgiveness. Sometimes we think that all we've got to do is say to someone, I forgive you, and then that's it. It's actually a lot more layered. It's a lot more complex than that. And there's two things that I want to uh, finish up with. Uh, Ways that we can forgive. Two things that forgiveness requires of us. Two practical things. The first is cleaning lenses. And the second is snapping arrows. Cleaning lenses and snapping arrows. So cleaning lenses... You know that feeling when you put on a pair of glasses and they're smudged, like your kids have been playing with them or someone's touched them or they've been in the dirt or whatever, and you put on that pair of glasses and you can still see, but everything else is like, it's, it's hard to see past this. The smudge is that you have to clean, you have to get your vision right. Well, we've got to clean that lens so that we can see. When someone sins against us, it's like, They've smudged that lens that you see them through. And every time you think of that person, you're seeing them through that lens. Like you can see them, but your vision of them is obscured by the hurt they've committed against you. And often what happens is that whenever you do think about them, you can't help but become overwhelmed with anger and sadness and loathing whenever you think of them. When you think of them, do you rehearse what you can say to them? if you could say anything without any consequences? When you think of that person, are you filled with anger or self-pity? When you think about that situation, are you always the hero in the way that you remember it? Or are you always the victim in the way that you remember it? Or even worse, are you both the hero and the victim in the way you remember the way that happened? You might have said that you forgive them, but if that's what's going on in your heart, whenever you think of them, then you haven't really forgiven them yet. Some of us have walked or are walking through incredibly difficult times in our marriages. I don't want to play that lightly at all. And you might think, you might not be able to think of your spouse without filling your heart with anger and pain. What you need to do is you need to clean that lens. How do we do that? We've got to see them as a child of God. You've got to see them as a child of God who has committed sins against God and, who, and God can forgive those sins. In fact, the sins they've committed against you are nothing to what they've committed against God. Therefore, if the perfect Son of God can forgive that person then who are, who are you and I not to? To not extend forgiveness to someone after we've been forgiven ourselves is to put ourselves above God and say, yeah, well, God might be able to forgive them, but I've got higher standards than that. The second thing we can be doing is snapping arrows. Now, I've talked about this before, but I think this is helpful. When someone sins against you, it's like they fired an arrow at you, a bow and arrow, they fired an arrow at you, and it got stuck in your, in your body. Now, to forgive them, you first need to remove that arrow from your body. But if you don't destroy that arrow, then the forgiveness is not complete. You see, if you shoot me with an arrow, and now I've got an arrow. I've got that, and I can hold on to it for as long as I want. And just when you're not suspecting it, I can fire that back at you and hurt you back again. 
And I might have said, I forgive you for shooting an arrow at me, but I've actually been holding this arrow behind my back the entire time. And just in case you slip up one more time, I've got this arrow and I'm going to get you. Forgiveness is about snapping arrows, rendering arrows useless. See, if I fire that arrow back at you, then you've got that arrow, you can fire it back at me. And and as long as that, that arrow is still in play, then there's always going to be contention between you and I. What we need to do then is snap arrows. This is a weird analogy, I know, but I found it helpful. That person might have fired it at you, but you, and you still might be hurting from it, but the only way that forgiveness can happen where there is no longer any animosity between you and your spouse, you and that person, is if one of you snaps that arrow. And here's how you snap arrows. You say, regardless of whatever has been done against me, I'm not going to use that against them. Even in the heat of battle, even in the heat of an argument, when the, when the tensions are high and the tempers are flaring, I'm never bringing this up again. I, I'm, I'm going to take this on myself. I'm never, going to be able, I'm never going to bring this up in an argument against you. And if you look at the feet of any healthy marriage, if you look around their feet, you will see snapped arrows scattered everywhere. To snap an arrow is to say, this ends here. I'm not going to get you back. I'm not going to retaliate. This ends with me. And this introduces us to something about forgiveness that is incredibly tough. Forgiveness always comes at the cost of the forgiver. It always does. There's no way that we can get around that. And this is what Jesus has done for us. To forgive us, it cost him everything. And by forgiving us, he's saying, whatever sin that you have committed against the Father, against against God if you put your faith in Jesus that will never be used against you and that's the wonderful good news of the gospel that we are forgiven of our sins that Jesus forgives us of our sins to forgive someone means that you're going to bear the brunt of that offense you're not going to try and share the offense with them and that's incredibly hard some of us might have many arrows in our quiver that we're holding on to ready to play at any given moment Some of us, I suspect, have been holding on to arrows for 30 or 40 years. You see, if there are unsnapped arrows in your marriage, if there are skeletons in the closet, if there are things that that have not been spoken about for years, then there's always going to be tension between the two of you. There's always going to be that unspoken elephant in the room. She can never talk about money because of how, how bad it makes him feel. He can never talk about family without bringing up some horrible memory for her. She can never talk about work without a bad taste coming into his mouth. He can never talk about an issue because she still hasn't forgiven it for him uh, from, from years on. And what you're doing is you're allowing your marriage to be defined by past hurts rather than the grace of Jesus Christ. For your marriage to be defined by grace means bringing in the grace of Jesus Christ to forgive sins. And the only way that you can do that is if, Jesus, if you can see that Jesus has forgiven you for so much more than you will ever need to forgive your husband or your wife. If you know what you've been forgiven for, it will give you all the reasons in the world to gladly forgive others. There's a story in Luke 7, which we read, uh, Andrew read to us earlier. A woman, Jesus is at a dinner party. 
A woman of the city, uh, a prostitute, comes in uninvited. She begins to wash Jesus' feet with her tears, wiping his feet with her hair and anointing his feet with expensive ointment. And the people who were there became indignant, both of her and of Jesus. And Jesus tells them a parable and says to them, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. In other words, she's doing this wonderful act of worship and love because she knows how much she has been forgiven. But the person who has no idea how much they have been forgiven won't have much impetus to love someone else. If you want love in your marriage, if you want fruitful, happy, healthy marriage, look upon the finished work of Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and we'll find all the fuel that we need. Here's the thing. If you carry into your marriage the identity of Christ and you put on that identity, you'll be giving you and your spouse every chance at having a wonderful and healthy marriage that brings glory to God and causes you both to flourish. So, here are five practical questions that you can ask yourself. Question one. When was the last time I showed compassion to my husband or wife? Not in general, specific. Over the past seven days, have my, this is question two, over the past seven days, have my words to my spouse been characterized by kindness or something else? Question number three, what is my most recent memory of forgetting myself for the sake of my spouse? Question number four, in our latest conflict, was I gentle and meek? Or did the, thought, did, the, did the thought, I told you so, cross my mind? Or did the, did the words, I told you so, come out of my mouth? Question number five. Have I been patient with my husband or wife with the things that they are working through? We need to let God's view of who we are be the defining factor in how we think of one another. We are God's chosen ones holy and beloved. That is our identity. We've been, forgiven for, by, we've been forgiven for so much, even though we did nothing to earn that. We are loved so deeply, even though we are utterly unlovable. We are being made into the likeness of Jesus Christ, holy and set apart and given purpose in our lives. And if we can see that that's what Jesus has done for us, it will give us the greatest impetus to love one another. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.